Hello, everybody. Hi, how are you? Wow, what a big, I can't believe so many people have come to see me today. That's incredible, that's incredible. Hi, my name is Colin Chatter. I am a um, member of the English department, and I'm here in the Newhouse Center for the Humanities. I am the Susan O'Donnell Newhouse Visiting Professor in Creative Writing, which means that I have a fantasy gig. I get to teach fantastic students, I get to build relationships with amazing colleagues, and I also get the opportunity to bring uh, to the campus, uh, under the auspices of the Distinguished Writer Series, um, some authors that I've always wanted to meet. You know, so it's a good way to get autographs. Uh, today we have um, one of um, the best Jamaican writers ever. I know that the Americans among us believe that Russell is an American writer, but he isn't. He is a Jamaican writer because that's the way he came into my life. I moved to America in 1982, and I was so fascinated that in the Bronx where I lived, that there were libraries, period, with books in them, and that there were no people in the library so I could read any book that I wanted. And um, one day, I saw a book called The Book of Jamaica. And I read this book. And the first thought that came to mind was, how come there's a Jamaican writer called Russell Banks that I had never heard about? <laughs> and then I read his bio, and it said, well, he was American. But I had already made him Jamaican. <laughs> Turns out that he lived in Jamaica for a long time. Um, and it also turns out that um, he's been a friend of Jamaica. And Jamaicans are very strange people, I know because I'm one of them. And there's nothing uh, more that they, than they, that they appreciate uh, than somebody who gets it. And what it means for us when somebody gets it, it means that somehow, by some means, they've been infused with the spirit of reggae. That is, it's an attitude that says that um, for one to be an intellectual, one does not have to speak in a complicated way. One can speak plain. It means that one has an awareness that survival is not simple, that all choices are uh, uh, calculations of nuance, but also to that the Americas, all the way from Patagonia all the way up to Alaska, has a conversation that it needs to have. That the conversation between the Americas and Europe is an old conversation. And that we have so many conversations that we need to have with each other. And when you look at Russell's work, you will see that intra-American conversation between Haiti and America and continental drift, for example. But you also see the conversation that America's class divisions need to have with each other, the working class and the privileged. And I remember seeing him read in Jamaica. And he got a response that I've seen few reggae artists get, uh, one of them being the late Gregory Isaacs, singer of Night Nurse, who passed away yesterday. And Russell was reading in front of an audience of about three, 4,000 people. And after he read these fishermen and these farmers and these university academics basically 
told him he had to give him one more. Now, in Jamaica, they don't say, may we please have one more. They go, pull up. And he came back and he read another story. And from then on, you know, the people of that small community of Treasure Beach, you know, they refer to him the way that my younger writer friends and I refer to him, which is as Father Russell, the real big man, the silverback. So here is his American introduction. Russell Banks was born in Newton, Massachusetts, and grew up in New Hampshire. He's written over a dozen novels and short story collections from the Guggenheim, NEA. His books include The Darling, The Sweet Hereafter, Cloud Splitter, that amazing book, Rule of the Bow and Affliction, Success Stories, Continental Drift, Searching for Survivors, Trailer Park, The Book of Jamaica, The New World, and Hamilton Stack, The Angel on the Roof, that lovely story collection. Uh, the novel's affliction and The Sweet Hereafter were adapted into feature films, which received widespread critical acclaim. James Coburn won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and Nick Nolte was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor in their roles in Affliction. Sweet Hereafter won three awards, including the Grand Prix and the International Critics Award at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. Currently, Martin Scorsese has plans to produce the film of Cloud Splitter, with a screenplay by Banks and Raoul Peck directing for HBO. Raoul Peck is also directing the feature film of Continental Drift, with a screenplay by Banks, which will star Josh Hartnett. Including among the numerous honors and awards Russell Banks has received are the Ingram Merrill Award, the John Dos Passos Award, the Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Laure Bataillon Prize for Best Work of Fiction, translated into French for the French edition of The Darling. Continental Drift and Cloud Splitter were Pulitzer Prize finalists. Affliction and Cloud Splitter were Penn Faulkner finalists. Banks was New York State author 2004 to 2008 and is the founder and president of Cities of Refuge North America. He hasn't been this way in a long time, and he's just from Newton right next door. So I think that we should make sure our cell phones are off before giving him what has come to be known as a wonderful Wellesley welcome. Please help me to welcome Russell Banks. Thank you, Colin, and thank you all, too, for coming out on this gorgeous uh, Indian summer afternoon. It is Indian summer, isn't it? Yeah, afternoon. I live in upstate New York, way upstate. Uh, when I say upstate, most people think it's the Catskills or something like that. No, I, I mean the Adirondacks. I'm, the closest city, really, is Montreal to where I live. And, and um, we don't really have Indian summer. We just have winter and then uh, road repair season. And, and, um, <laughs> So I was, it's nice to be here, um, near the city of my birth, actually. My mother, for years and years, um, said that I was born at the Newton Wellesley Hospital, and, and then when I first wanted to travel abroad, I um, applied for my passport and needed to get my birth certificate, and so I wrote to the Newton Wellesley Hospital, and there was no record of my birth there. And, um, and so I shopped around, as it were, and, and, and went to the Newton Hospital and then found that I had been born there instead. And then when I confronted my mother over this discrepancy, she said, well, Newton Wellesley just sounded better, and, and so, uh, which gives you some insight into my mother's um, uh, hierarchy of values, perhaps. 
I'd like to read to you a short story tonight, and then Colin and I were going to have a conversation, which we do all the time anyhow, um, but this will be public, I think. Um, but the story is called Lobster Night, and, and some of you will recognize the uh, type of man um, as a type who is at the center of the story, and some of you also will recognize the, the woman um, who's at the center of the story, although it is set um, a long ways from here in, in um, my own village, my own town in upstate New York. It's called Lobster Night. Stacy didn't mean to tell Noonan that when she was 17, she was struck by lightning. She rarely told anyone and never a man she was attracted to or hoped soon to be sleeping with. Always at the last second, an alarm at the center of her brain went off and she changed the subject, asked a question like, how's your wife? Or, you ready for another? She was a summertime bartender at Noonan's, a sprawling log building with the main entrance and kitchen door facing the road and three large plate glass dining room windows in back and a wide redwood deck cantilevered above the yard for taking in the great sunset views of the Adirondack Mountains. The sign said Noonan's Family Restaurant, but in fact it was a roadhouse, a bar, that except in ski season and on summer weekends when drive-by tourists with kids mistakenly pulled in for lunch or supper, they catered mostly to heavy drinkers from the nearby, several nearby hamlets. The night that Stacy told Noonan about the lightning was also the night she shot and killed him. She had rented an A-frame at off-season rates in one of the hamlets and was working for noon and only till the winter snows blew in from Quebec and Ontario. From May to November, she usually waited tables or attended bar in one or another of the area restaurants and the rest of the year taught alpine skiing at Whiteface Mountain. That was her real job, her profession, and she had the healthy ash blonde good looks of a poster girl for women's Nordic sports, tall, broad-shouldered, flat-muscled, with square jaw and high cheekbones. Despite appearances, however, she viewed herself as a plain-faced 28-year-old ex-athlete with the emphasis on X. Eight years ago, she was captain of the nationally ranked St. Regis University downhill ski team, only a sophomore and already a star. Then in the eastern regionals, she pushed her luck, took a spectacular cartwheeling spill in the giant, giant slalom, and shattered her left thigh. The video of the last ten seconds of her fall was still being shown at the front of the sports segment on the evening news from Plattsburgh. A year of physical therapy and she returned to college and the slopes, but she'd lost her fearlessness and with it her interest in college and dropped out before fall break. Her parents had long since swapped their house for an RV and retired to a semi-permanent campground outside Phoenix. Her three older brothers had drifted downstate to Albany for work in construction. But Stacy came back anyhow to where she'd grown up. She had friends from high school there, mostly women, who still thought of her as a star. Stace was headed for the Olympics, you know, they told strangers. Over time, she lived briefly and serially with three local men in their early 30s, men she called losers even when she was living with them, slow-talking guys with beards and ponytails, rusted-out pickup trucks and large dogs with bandanas tied around their necks. 
Otherwise, and most of the time, she lived alone. Stacy had never tended bar for Noonan before this, and the place was a little rougher than she was used to. But she was experienced and had cultivated a set of open-faced, wise-guy ways and a laid-back manner that protected her from her male customers' presumptions, which, in spite of her ways and manner, she needed. She was a shy North Country girl who, when it came to personal matters, volunteered very little about herself, not because she had secrets, but because there was so much about herself that she did not yet understand. She did understand, however, that the last thing she wanted or needed was a love affair with a man like Noonan, married, 20 years older than she, and her boss. She was seriously attracted to him, though, and not just sexually, which was why she got caught off guard. It was late August, a Thursday, the afternoon of Lobster Night. The place was empty, and she and Noonan were standing hip to hip behind the bar, studying the lobster tank. Back in June, Noonan, who did all the cooking himself, had decided that he could attract a better class of clientele and simplify the menu at the same time if during the week he offered nightly specials, which he advertised on a chalkboard hung from the family restaurant sign outside. Monday became Mexican night with dollar margaritas and all the rice and refried beans you can eat. Tuesday was liver and onions night. Wednesday was fresh local corn night, although until mid-August the corn came not from Adirondack Gardens but from southern New Jersey and Pennsylvania by way of the Grand Union supermarket in Lake Placid. And Thursday, when local folks rarely ate out and therefore needed something more than merely special, was designated lobster night. Weekends, he figured, took care of themselves. Noonan had set his teenage son's unused tropical fish tank at the end of the bar, filled it with water, and arranged with the Albany wholesaler to stock the tank on his Monday runs to Lake Placid with a dozen live lobsters. All week, the lobsters rose and sank in the cloudy tank like dark thoughts. Usually, by Tuesday afternoon, the regulars at the bar had given the lobsters names, like Marsh and Red Eye and Honest Abe, local drinking, hunting, and bar brawling legends, and had handicapped the order of their execution. In the villages around, Thursday quickly became everyone's favorite night for eating out, and soon Noonan was doubling his weekly order, jamming the fish tank, and making lobster night an almost merciful event for the poor, crowded creatures. You ought to either get a bigger tank or else just don't buy so many of them, Stacy said. Noonan laughed. Stace, he said, compared to the cardboard boxes these guys have been in, the fish tank is lobster heaven. Four days of swimming in this, they're free range, practically. He draped a heavy hand across her shoulder and drummed her collarbone with a fingertip. They don't know the difference anyhow. They're dumber than fish, you know. You don't know what they feel or don't feel. Maybe they spend the last few days before they die flipping out from being so confined. I sure would. Yeah, well, I don't go there, Stace. Trying to figure what lobsters feel, that's the road to vegetarianism, the road to Vegansville. She smiled at that. Like most of the Adirondack men she knew, Noonan was a dedicated, lifelong hunter, 
mainly of deer, but also of game birds and rabbits, which he fed to his family and sometimes put on the restaurant menu as well. He shot and trapped animals he didn't eat, too. Foxes, coyotes, lynxes, even bear, and sold their pelts. Normally, this would disgust Stacy, or at least seriously test her acceptance of Noonan's character. She wasn't noticeably soft-hearted when it came to animals or sentimental, but shooting and trapping creatures you didn't intend to eat made no sense to her. She was sure it was cruel and was almost ready to say it was sadistic. In Noonan, though, it oddly attracted her, this cruelty. He was a tall, good-looking man in an awkward, rough-hewn way, large in the shoulders and arms, with a clean-shaven face and buzz-cut head one or two sizes too small for his body. It made him look boyish to her. And whenever he showed signs of cruelty, his relentless, not-quite-good-natured teasing of Gail, his regular waitress, and the LaPierre brothers, two high school kids he hired to, in summers to wash dishes and bust tables. To her, he seemed even more boyish than usual. It was all somehow innocent, she thought. It had the same strange, otherworldly innocence of the animals that he liked to kill. A man that manly, that different from a woman, can actually make you feel more womanly, as if you were of a different species. It freed you from having to compare yourself to him. You ever try that? Vegetarianism? Noonan asked. He tapped the glass of the tank with a knuckle as if signaling one of the lobsters to come on over. Once, when I was 17, I kept it up for a while, two years as a matter of fact, till I busted up my leg and had to quit college. He knew the story of her accident. Everyone knew it. She'd been a local hero before the break and had become a celebrity afterwards. It's hard to keep being a vegetarian in the hospital, though. That's what got me off it. No shit. What got you on it? That's when she told him. I was struck by lightning. He looked at her. Lightning? Jesus. Are you kidding me? How the hell did that happen? The way it always happens, I guess. I was doing something else at the time. Going up the stairs to bed, actually, in my parents' house. It was in a thunderstorm, and I reached for the light switch on the wall, and bam, just like they say, a bolt out of the blue. But it didn't kill you, Noonan tenderly observed. No, but it sure could have. You could say it almost killed me, though. But it didn't. Right, but it almost killed me. That's not the same as it didn't kill me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but you're okay now, right? No lingering after effects, I mean. Except, of course, for your brief flirtation with the veg world. He squeezed the meat of her shoulder and smiled warmly. She sighed, then smiled back. She liked his touch and tried again. No, it really changed me. It did. A bolt of lightning went through my body and my brain, and I almost died from it even though it only lasted a fraction of a second and then was over. But you're okay now, right? Sure. So what's it like, getting hit by lightning? 
She hesitated a moment before answering. Well, I thought I was shot with a gun. Seriously. There was this loud noise, like an explosion, and when I woke up, I was lying at the bottom of the stairs, and Daddy and Mom were standing over me like I was dead, and I said, Who shot me, Daddy? It really messed with my mind for a long time. I tried to find out if anybody else I knew had been struck by lightning, but nobody had. Although a few people said they knew someone or heard of someone who had been hit and survived it. But nobody I ever met myself had been through it. I was the only person I knew who'd had this particular experience. Still am. It's strange, but when you're the only person you know who's gone through something that's changed you into a completely different person, for a while it's like you're on your own planet. Like if you're a Vietnam vet and don't know anyone else who was in Vietnam too. I can dig it, Noonan said somberly, although he himself had not been in Vietnam. You get used to it though, and then it turns out to be like life. I mean, there's you and there's everybody else. Only unlike the way it is for everybody else, this happened to me in a flash, not over years, and so slow you don't even realize how true it is. Know what I mean? How true what is? Well, just that there's you and there's everybody else, and that's life. Sure, I can understand that. He turned away from the tank and looked into Stacy's blue eyes. It's the same for me. Only with me, it was on account of this goddamn bear. Did I ever tell you about the bear that tore my camp down? She said, no, Noonan, you didn't. It's the same thing, like getting struck by lightning and afterwards feeling like you're a changed man. It was years ago, he said, when he was between marriages and drinking way too much and living in his hunting camp up on Baxter Mountain because his first wife had got the house and the divorce. He got drunk every night in town at the Spread Eagle or the Elm Tree or the old Dew Drop Inn, and afterwards, when he drove back to Baxter Mountain, he'd park his truck at the side of the road because the trail was too rough even for a 4 by 4 and walk the two miles through the woods to his camp. It was a wind-blown one-room cabin with a sleeping loft and a wood stove, and one night, when he stumbled back from the village, the place had been trashed by a bear. An adolescent male, I figured, it being springtime, who'd been kicked out of his own house and home. Not unlike myself. I had a certain sympathy for him, therefore. But he'd wrecked my cabin looking for food and had busted a window going out, and I knew he'd come back, so I had to take him down. The next evening, Noonan blew out his kerosene lantern, climbed into the sleeping loft with a bottle of Jim Beam, his Winchester 30-06, and his flashlight, and waited. Around midnight, as if brushing away a cobweb, the bear tore off the sheet of polyurethane that Noonan had tacked over the broken window, crawled into the cabin, and made for the same cupboard he'd emptied the night before. Noonan, half drunk by now, clicked on his flashlight, caught the startled bear in its beam and fired, but only wounded him. Maddened with pain, the bear roared and stood on his hind legs, flinging his forelegs in the air right and left, and before Noonan could fire again, the animal had grabbed onto a timber that held up the loft and ripped it from its place, tearing out several other supporting timbers with it until the entire cabin was collapsing around Noonan and the wounded bear. 
The structure was feeble anyhow, made of old cast-off boards tacked together in a hurry 20 years ago, never rebuilt, never renovated, and it came down upon Noonan's head with ease. The bear escaped into the night, but Noonan lay trapped under the fallen roof of the cabin, unable to move, his right arm broken, he assumed, and possibly several ribs. That's when it happened, he said. What? Stacy dipped a dozen beer mugs, two at a time, into cold water, pulled them out, and stuck them into the freezer to frost for later on. What? Just like you said. It changed my life, Stace. No kidding. How? She refilled the salt shakers on the bar. Well, I stopped drinking, for one thing. That was a, a few years later, though. But I lay there all that night and most of the next day until this beautiful young woman out looking for her lost dog came wandering by and Stace, he said, his voice suddenly lowered, I married her. She put her fist on her hips and checked him out. Seriously? He smiled. Well, yeah, sort of. I'd actually known her a long time beforehand, and she'd visited me a few times at my camp, let us say. But, yeah, I did marry her, eventually. And we were very happy for a while. Uh-huh, for a while. Noonan nodded, smiled, winked, then bumped her hip with his and said, I got to get the kitchen set up. We can pursue this later, Stace, if you want. She didn't answer she started slinging bottles of beer into the darkness of the cooler, and when she next looked up, he was gone, and a pair of road workers were coming through the door, hot and sunburned and thirsty. The day had been clear with wispy fantails of clouds in the east, promising a soft late summer sunset over the mountains for the folks dining out at Noonan's family restaurant. It was unusually busy that evening, even for lobster night. Depressed by a quarrel earlier with her pregnant daughter over money, Gail fell quickly behind in her orders, and after being yelled at, first by her hungry customers in the dining room and then by Noonan in the kitchen, where seven or eight bright red lobsters on their platters awaited pickup, she broke down and ran sobbing into the ladies' room. She came out, but only after Stacy went after her and promised to help in the dining room, where 15 kids from three unrelated French-Canadian families were banging their silverware rhythmically against their glasses. Back in the kitchen, halfway into the supper hour, Denny, Donnie Lapierre threw down his dish towel and told Noonan to take his job and shove it. He didn't graduate high school just to get treated like an idiot for minimum wage. His younger brother, Timmy, who would graduate the following year, high-fived Donnie and said, Whoa, way cool, D.L., and the two walked out together. <laughs> Noonan stood at the door and bellowed, Don't even think about getting paid for this week. And the boys gave him the finger from the parking lot and laughed and started hitching to Lake Placid. Eventually, Gail and Stacy, between them, got everyone satisfactorily served, and the diners and their children quieted down, and order was restored, even in the kitchen, where Noonan, almost grateful for the chance to do it right, took over the dishwasher's job himself. At the bar, four bored, lonely regulars, men of habit, were drinking and smoking cigarettes and watching Montreal lose on television, Stacy gave them a round on the house for their patience, and all four smiled and thanked her and resumed watching the game. 
In the fish tank, the one last lobster bumped lazily against the glass. Stacy wiped down the bar and came to a slow stop by the tank. She leaned down and gazed into what she believed was one of the lobster's eyes, more of a greenish knob than an eyeball, anatomically absurd to her, and tried to imagine what the world of Noonan's family restaurant looked like through that knob and the 30-gallon cell of cloudy water surrounding it, and beyond that, the lens of the algae-stained glass wall. It probably looks like an alien planet out here, she thought, or incomprehensibly foreign, like some old-time Chinese movie, so you don't even know what the story's about, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Or maybe instead of an actual place or thing to a lobster, it only looks like an idea out here. That scared her. There must be some kind of trade-off among the senses, she reasoned, like with blind and deaf people. If one sense is weak, another must be strong, and vice versa. Lobsters, she figured, probably couldn't see very well, living as they did way at the dark bottom of the sea. To distinguish food from friend and friend from foe, they would need powerful senses of smell and hearing. She brought her face up close to the glass and almost touched it with her nose. The lobster bobbled and jiggled just beyond, as if struggling to use its weak eyes and tank-impaired hearing and olfactory senses to determine if Stacy was a thing that could eat it or breed with it or be eaten by it. So much in the life of any creature depends upon being able to identify the other creatures accurately, Stacy thought. In the tank and out of it, too. And this poor beast, with only its ridiculous eyes to depend upon, was lost, was wholly, utterly lost. She reached toward the lobster, as if to pat it, to comfort and reassure it that she would not eat it, and she could not breed with it, and would not make a decent meal for it either. Noonan's large hand dropped unseen from above as if through dark water and came to rest upon hers. She turned startled, and there was his face a bare few inches away, his large bloodshot brown eyes, and his porous peach-colored skin with black whiskers popping through like lopped-off stalks, soft caves of nostrils, red lips, tobacco-stained teeth wet tongue. She yanked her hand away and stepped back, bringing him into a more appropriate and safe focus with the bar between them like a fence, keeping him out or her in. She wasn't sure, but it didn't matter as long as they were on opposite sides of it. You scared me, she said. He leaned across the bar and smiled indulgently. Behind her, the men drank beer and watched baseball. She heard the crowd at the ballpark chitter in anticipation of the pitch. From the dining room came the low rumble of families distributing food among themselves and their hushed commentaries as they evaluated its quality and the size of their portions, praise and disappointment voiced equally low as if both were gossip, and the clink of their forks and knives, gulps, chomps, an old man's sudden laugh, the snap of lobster claws and legs breaking. Stace. Soon as you get the chance, come on out to the kitchen. There's something I want to tell you. He turned and abruptly strode to the dining room, spoke a moment to Gail, sympathetically offering to let her go home early. Stacy guessed. 
getting rid of waitresses and gathering up, uh, getting with, rid of witnesses and gathered up a tub of dirty dishes left behind by Timmy LaPierre. As Noonan disappeared into the kitchen, he glanced over at Stacy, and though a stranger would have thought him expressionless, she saw him practically speaking with his face, saw him using it to say in a low, cold voice, Stace, as soon as we're alone here tonight, I'm going to take you down. She decided to force the issue, to go back to the kitchen right now before Gail left while there was still a fairly large number of people in the dining room and the four guys at the bar, and if Noonan said what she expected him to say and did what she expected him to do, then she would walk out the door just like the LaPierre boys had, take off in her car, the doors locked and windows up, the wheels spinning, kicking gravel and squealing rubber as she left the parking lot and hit the road to Lake Placid. Who the hell did he think he was, anyhow, coming on to her like that? Him, a married man, middle-aged practically. Sure, she had been attracted to him from the first time she saw him when he interviewed her for the job and had made her turn and turn again while he sat there on the bar stool and looked her over with genuine interest, almost with innocence, as if she were a bouquet of wildflowers he'd ordered for his wife. Turn around, Stace. Let me see the other side. She'd actually liked his suddenness, his fearless, impersonal way of telling her exactly what he wanted from her, instructing her to wear a tight white T-shirt and black jeans or shorts to work in and to be friendly with the customers, especially the males, because he wanted return business, not one-night stands, and men will come back and stay late again and again if they think the pretty girl behind the bar likes them personally. She had smiled like a co-conspirator when he told her that and said, No problema, Mr. Noonan. Hey, you can call me Charlie, or you can call me Noonan. Just don't call me at home and never call me Mr. You're hired, Stace. Go change the dress and be back here by six. But all that was before she told him about having been struck by lightning. Until then, she had thought it was safe to flirt with him. He was married, after all, and he was so unlike the losers she usually hooked up with that she had decided it was harmless as well as interesting to be attracted to him. Nothing could come of it anyhow. and wasn't intelligent, after all, for a young woman to want a successful older man's attention and approval. Wasn't that how you learned about life and who you were? Somehow this afternoon, everything had changed. She couldn't have said how it had changed or why, but everything was different now, especially between her and Noonan. It wasn't what he had done or not done, or even anything he had said. It was what she had said. A woman who has been struck by lightning is not like other people. Most of the time, Stacy could forget that fact, could even forget what that horrible night had felt like when she was only 17 and thought that she had been shot in the head. But all she had to do was say the words, reestablish the fact, and the whole thing came back in full force, her astonishment, the physical and mental pain, and the long-lasting fear, even to today, that it would happen to her again. The only people who say lightning never strikes twice in the same place have never been struck once, which was why she was so reluctant to speak of it. But Noonan had charmed her into speaking of it, and all at once there it was again, as if a glass wall had appeared between her and other people, Noonan especially. 
The man had no idea who she was. But that wasn't his fault. It was hers. She had misled him. She had misled herself. She checked the drinks of the customers at the bar. Then to show Gail where she was headed, she pointedly flipped a wave across the dining room and walked back to the kitchen. When she entered, Noonan was leaning against the edge of the sink, his large bare arms folded across his chest, his head lowered, a man absorbing a sobering thought. Stacy said, what do you want to tell me? She stayed by the door, propping it open with her foot. He shook his head as if waking from a nap. What? Oh, Stace. Sorry, I was thinking. Actually, Stace, I was thinking about you. Me? Yeah. Close the door. Come on in. He peered around her into the dining room. Is Gail okay? She's not crying or anything anymore, is she? No. Stacy let the door slide shut behind her. The exhaust fan chugged above the stove and the dishwasher sloshed quietly next to the sink, tinkling the glasses and silverware inside and jiggling the plates. On a shelf by the rear door, a portable radio played country and western music at low volume, sweetly melancholic background music. There was a calming order and peacefulness to the kitchen, a low-key domesticity about it that, even though the room was as familiar to her as the kitchen of her rented A-frame, surprised Stacy. She felt guilty now for having been so suspicious of Noonan and so quick to judge and condemn him. He was an ordinary man, that's all, a basically harmless and well-intended man. She had no reason to fear him. She liked his boyish good looks, didn't she? And enjoyed his smoky baritone voice and unapologetic North Country accent. And she was pleased and flattered by his sudden flashes of intimacy. What did you want to tell me, Noonan? She repeated softly this time, invitingly. He leaned forward, eyes twinkling, mischief on his mind, and looked right and left as if not wishing to be overheard. What do you say we cooked that last lobster and split it between ourselves? He gave her a broad smile and rubbed his hands together. Don't tell Gail. I'll boil and chill the sucker and break out the meat and squeeze a little lime juice over it, and we'll eat it later after we close up, just the two of us. Maybe open a bottle of wine. What do you say? He came up to her and put his arm around her shoulder and steered her toward the door. You go liberate the animal from its tank and I'll bring the kettle to a roiling boil, as they say. No. She shrugged out from under his arm. Huh? What do you mean, no? Just that. No, I, I don't want a quiet little tete-a-tete out here with you after we close. I don't want to make it with you, Noonan. You're married. And I resent the way you act like it doesn't matter to you. Or worse, me. You act like you're being married doesn't matter to me. Noonan was confused. What the fuck? Who said anything about making it? Jesus! She exhaled heavily. I'm sorry, she said. You're right. I don't know what you've got in mind, Noonan, really. I don't know why I settled it. I'm just, I'm scared, I guess. You? Scared? Ha. She was young and beautiful and healthy. She was an athlete, a woman who could pick and choose among men much younger, more available, better looking, and richer than he. 
What did she have to be scared of? Not him, that's for sure. Man, you are one screwed up broad, let me tell you. He shook his head slowly in frustration and disgust. Look, I don't give a shit you don't want to join me in a, what do you call it, a -a tete-a-tete. Suit yourself. But I am going to eat me some lobster anyhow, alone, he said, and he sailed through the door into the dining room. Stacy slowly crossed the kitchen to the back door, last used by the LaPierre brothers on their way to the parking lot and road beyond. It was a screen door, and moths and mosquitoes batted against it and swarmed around the yellow bulb on the wall outside. On this side of the restaurant, it was already dark. Out back, where the building faced the west and the mountains, the sky was pale orange with long silver-gray clouds tinged with purple floating up high and blood-red strips of cloud near the horizon. She decided she'd better return to the bar. There would be a few diners she knew who would want to take an after-dinner drink onto the deck and watch the sunset. Before she could get out the door, noon in his face, dark with confused anger, strode back into the kitchen, carrying the last lobster in his dripping wet hand. The lobster feebly waved its claws in the air, and his thick armored tail curled in on itself and snapped back in a weak, hopeless attempt to push Noonan away. Here, you do the honors, Noonan said to Stacy and held the lobster up to her face. With his free hand, he flipped the gas jet below the slow-boiling lobster pot to high. Have you ever boiled a live lobster, Stacy? Oh, it's a real turn-on. He leered, but it was an angry leer. You're going to love it, Stacy, especially the way it turns bright red as soon as you drop it into the boiling water. It won't sink right away, of course, because it's still alive and will struggle to climb out of the pot just like you would. But even while it's trying to get out of the boiling water, it'll be turning red and then it'll slow in its struggle and you'll see. It'll give up and when that happens, it's dead and cooked and ready to be eaten. Yum. He pushed the lobster at her and it flailed its claws in her face as if it were a hand, as if it were her hand clamped onto its back, not Noonan's. She didn't flinch or back away. She held her ground and looked into what passed for the animal's face, searching for an expression, some indicator of feeling or thought that would guide her own feelings and thoughts. But there was none, and when she realized there could be none, this pleased her, and she smiled. It's getting to you, right? Noonan said. I can tell. It's a turn-on for you, right? He smiled back, almost forgiving her for having judged him so unfairly, and held the lobster over the pot of boiling water. Steam billowed around the creature's twisting body, and Stacy stared, transfixed, when from the dining room she heard the rising voices of the diners, their loud exclamations and calls to one another to come and see. Hurry up. Come and see the bear. Stacy and Noonan looked at each other in puzzlement. She in puzzlement, he with irritated resignation. Shit, he said. This has got to be the worst goddamn night of my life. He dropped the lobster into the empty sink and disappeared into the pantry, returning to the kitchen a few seconds later with a rifle cradled in his arms. Son of a bitch, this is the last time that bastard gets into my trash, he declared, and made for the dining room with Stacy following close behind. She had never seen a black bear close up, 
although it was not uncommon to come upon one in the neighborhood, especially in midsummer when the mountain streams ran dry and sent the normally shy creatures to the lower slopes and valleys where the humans lived. Once when driving back to college after summer vacation, she thought she spotted a large bear crossing the road a hundred yards ahead of her and at first had assumed it couldn't be a bear. It must be a huge dog, a Newfoundland maybe, moving slowly until it heard her car coming and broke into a swift forward-tilted lope and disappeared into the brush as she passed. She wasn't sure she hadn't imagined it. She stopped the car and backed up to where the animal had entered the brush, but there was no sign of its ever having been there, no broken weeds or freshly fallen leaves even. This time, however, she intended to see the bear up close, if possible, and to know for sure that she did not imagine it. When she got to the dining room, everyone, Gail and the regulars from the bar included, was standing at the windows, gazing down at the yard and back where the land sloped away from the building, pointing and murmuring small noises of appreciation, except for the children who were stilled by the sight, not so much frightened by the bear as in awe of it. The adults seemed to be mainly pleased by their good luck, for now they would have something novel to report to their friends and family when they returned home. This would become the night they saw the bear at Noonan's. Then Stacy saw Noonan and several other diners, all of them men, out on the deck. They too stared down into the yard below the dining room and in the direction of the basement door where Noonan stashed his garbage and trash barrels in a locked wooden latticework cage. The men were somber and intent, taut, almost trembling, like hunting dogs on point. Stacy edged up to the window. Behind the distant mountains, the sun was gloriously setting. Its last golden rays splashed across the neatly mowed yard behind the restaurant and shone like a soft spotlight upon the thick, black-pelted body of the bear. It was a large adult male, over six feet tall on his hind legs, methodically, calmly ripping away the sides and top of the lattice cage, sending torn boards into the air like kindling sticks, working efficiently, but at the bear's own placid pace, as if he were utterly alone, and there were no audience of men, women, and children staring down at him from the dining room windows overhead, no small gang of men out on the deck watching him like a hunting party gathered on a cliff above a watering hole. And as if Noonan were not lifting his rifle to his shoulder, aiming it and firing. He shot once and he missed the bear altogether. He fired a second time. The bear was struck high in the back and a tuft of black hair flew away from his chest where the bullet emerged and the crowd in the dining room groaned and cried out, he's shooting it, oh God, he's shooting it. A woman screeched, tell him to stop and children began to bawl. A man yelled, for God's sake, is he nuts? Gail looked beseechingly at Stacy who simply shook her head slowly from side to side for she could do nothing to stop him now, no one could. People shouted and cried, a few sobbed, and children wailed, and Noonan fired a third time. He hit the bear in the shoulder, and the animal spun around, still standing, searching for the source of this terrible pain, not understanding that he should look up, that the man with the rifle, barely fifty yards away, was positioned out of sight above him, and because of his extreme anger, because of his refusal 
to be impersonal in this grisly business was unable to kill him, and so he wounded the poor creature again and again in the chest, in a paw, and shot him through the muzzle until finally the bear dropped to all fours and unsure in which direction to flee, tumbled first away from the restaurant downhill towards the woods. When hit in the back, he turned and came lumbering, bleeding, and in pain straight toward the deck where Noonan fired one last shot, hitting the bear this time in the center of his forehead, and the bear rolled forward as if he had been tripped and died. Rifle in hand, Noonan stomped in silence past the departing crowd, his gaze fixed rigidly on something inside, a target in his mind of a silhouetted bear. No one spoke to him or caught his eye as he passed. No one looked at his back, even, when he strode into the kitchen and the door swung shut behind him. The men who had stood with him on the deck outside were ashamed now to have been there. Making as little of it as possible, they joined their wives and friends, all of whom were lined up at the cash register, paying Gale, leaving cash on the table or paying Stacy at the bar, and quickly heading for the parking lot in their cars. There were a few stunned, silent exceptions, older kids too shocked to cry or too proud, but most of the children were weeping and some wailed while the parents tried vainly to comfort them, to assure them that bears don't feel pain the same way humans do, and the man who shot the bear had to shoot it because it was damaging his property, and not to worry, we will never come to this restaurant again, no matter what. When everyone had left, Gail walked slowly from the dining room to the bar, where she took off her apron, folded it carefully, and set it on a bar stool. That's it for me, she said to Stacy. With trembling hands, she knocked a cigarette loose from the pack and lighted it and inhaled deeply. Tell him he can mail me my pay, she said. The fucker. She started for the door and then abruptly stopped. Without turning around, she said, Stacy, why the hell are you staying? I'm not. In a voice so low she seemed to be talking to herself, Gail said, Yes, girl, you are. Then she was gone. Stacy flipped off the lights in the bar and the dining room one by one, unplugged the roadside sign, and locked the front entrance. When she pushed open the door to the kitchen, Noonan, standing at the far end of the long stainless steel counter, looked up and scowled at her. He had cooked the last lobster and was eating it, eating it off the counter, and with his hands, broken shells and the remains of its shattered carcass lay scattered in front of him. He poked a forefinger into the thick, muscular tail and shoved a chunk of white meat out the other end, snatched it up, and popped it into his mouth. Eight fucking shots it took me, he said, chewing. That's what I get for stashing that goddamn pissant twenty-two here instead of laying in a real gun. He waved contemptuously with the back of his hand at the rifle propped against the counter and with his other hand pushed more lobster meat into his mouth. His face was red and he was breathing rapidly and heavily. I missed the first shot, you know, only because I was so pissed off I didn't concentrate. But if I had a real gun, that second would have done the job fine. By God, tomorrow I'm bringing in my .30-06, he declared. Stacy picked up the twenty-two rifle and looked it over. She slid it into shooting position against her right shoulder and aimed along the barrel through the screen door and the fluttering cluster of moths to the outside lamp. 
Is it still loaded? She said. There's four rounds left, so don't fuck with it. He yanked the spindly legs off the underbelly of the lobster and sucked the meat from each and dropped the emptied tubes one by one onto the counter in front of him. Slowly, Stacy brought the rifle around and aimed it at Noonan's skull. Noonan, she said, and he turned. Yeah, sure. She closed her eyes and pulled the trigger and heard the explosion. And when she opened her eyes, she saw in the middle of Noonan's broad white forehead a dark hole the size of a dime, which instantly expanded to a quarter. And his large body jerked once as if electrocuted and flipped backwards his astonished face gone from her sight altogether now, and she saw instead the back of his head and a hole in it the size of a silver dollar. His body, like a large rubberized sack of water, fell to the floor, spinning away from her as it descended and ending flat on its back with Noonan's wide-open eyes staring at the pot rack above the counter. Blood pumped from the hole in the rear of his skull onto the pale green linoleum and spread in a thickening dark red puddle slowly toward her feet. She lay the rifle on the counter beside the broken remains of the lobster and crossed to the stove where the pot of water was still boiling and shut off the gas flame. Slowly, as if unsure of where she was, she looked around the room and seemed to make a decision and perched herself on a stool next to the walk-in refrigerator. She leaned her head back against the cool stainless steel door and closed her eyes. Never in her life, never, had Stacy known the relief she felt at that moment. And not since the moment before she was struck by lightning had she known the freedom. A rattling Ford pickup truck stopped beside the darkened roadside sign, and the Lapierre brothers, Danny and Timmy, leaped from the truck bed the side of the road. Hey, good luck with old Noonan, you little assholes, the driver said, and he and a male passenger in the cab cackled with laughter. Two beery, expansive carpenters, they were cousins of the LaPierres, heading home to their wives and kids late from the bars of Lake Placid. They waved cheerfully to the boys and pulled away. Donnie and Timmy crunched across the gravel parking lot kitchen light and the lamp outside were still on, and when the boys were halfway across the lot, they saw Stacy through the screen door, seated on the stool by the big walk-in fridge. She was asleep, it looked like, or maybe just bored out of her mind listening to one of Noonan's dumb hunting stories. You think he's screwing Stacy? Timmy asked. Come on, man. Stacy's a babe, and he's ancient, man, Donnie said. It's cool she's still here, though, he added. She likes us, and he'll hire us back just to look good. I wouldn't mind a little of that myself. A little of what? Stacy, man. Donnie punched his younger brother on the shoulder. Yeah, well, you'll have to wait your turn, little fella. He laughed. He waved away the swarming cloud of moths and pulled the screen door open. Timmy entered first, and Donnie hiding his fading grin behind his hand, followed. And so, I would hate to be a character in one of your books because it's really interesting because 
Um, <laughs> bad things happen in the end of many of your stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, do, you get down to that moment at the end, and you say, is a good thing happen or a bad thing happen? And you say, what's plausible? <laughs> For me, the bad things are much more plausible than the good things, it seems. And, um, and so I end up opting for, for the bad things. I mean, bad things mean, you know, mortality, right, basically. Sure. Um, right. And um, in this story, of course, uh, rage uh, as well. Um, right. And um, um, that's often bubbling along, just barely contained right. and, and, um, by the constraints of, of civilization and so right. forth. And, um, and we're basically and finds we're basically shaving apes. Yeah, exactly. Right. I know. I, well, I did an awful lot of research on, on chimpanzees for a novel called The Darling, and, and spent a lot of time visiting uh, chimps. And um, and most people uh, say, and I even heard uh, Jane Goodall say the other night on television, that isn't it remarkable uh, how much they're like us? And, and instead, I always saw it as isn't it remarkable how much we're like them? Right. And. <laughs> right. And uh, the more I, I studied and learned and, and spent time with chimpanzees, the closer right. we seem to be. Um, we seem to be to them rather right. than they seem to be to right. our idealized version of ourselves, right. our angelic version. Right, because we're so driven by, by power and, and so driven by the need for it and, um, and the ways in which when we can have power, how that becomes channeled into other activities, and very often how that leads to violence. I mean, mm -hmm. um, in the scene in which um, Noonan, mm. you know, is eating the lobster mm. after he's killed the bear, mm. right? Mm. That very animalistic scene of how nature works. Yeah, I guess so, but it's also point of view. I mean, um, I'm looking at him. You could describe a man eating a lobster any number of ways. Of course. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the language ends up... Um, Coloring it, and, and something I, I learned years ago is, is, um, is that it's really um, in the language that the moral perspective, moral point of view in a work of fiction is conveyed, and um, because it can be any any scene can be presented any hundred different ways right. you know, with the same action, um, but it's the language that 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 conveys to the reader the author's the writer's. Um, moral perspective on the things which he's or she's describing, and um, and so yeah, so he's described in a bestial way, perhaps right. uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, eating that lobster, um, and um, you know certain modified aspects of that or, or controlled aspects of that when he's not when he's when he's under control earlier are attractive to her. Right, it. it's physical energy, it's mm -hmm. male energy. Right. And, and, and it's kind of unselfconsciousness that right. she sees and so on. And that's kind of attractive to right. her. But then you take it to the next stage, and, and, and that's what, you know, and that's my point of view. I'm looking at the story. I'm writing a scene down from my point of view. And how the, that little scene gets colored and, and, and filled in with the details, I mean, mm -hmm. of his eating, how he eats that lobster right. is, is, is really how I see him, too, uh -huh. as a man just, he's only... As she describes the lobster, it's only interested in you know what he can eat, 
what might eat him and what he can breed with. Right. And he's sort of as basic <laughs> as that. And, and the rest of it is this civilized behavior that, right. that, that gives him a vocabulary for functioning among other human beings right. without uh, being executed for it. Right, right. Although yeah. in this case, he stepped across the line. Right. right. <laughs> Got <And> executed. <laughs> um, Kwame Dawes, and there's a line, first line of one of his poems that says, in the detail lies the poem. Right? Yeah. There's a, the, in, in the, one of the ways in which we um, can tell or sense real writing in a writer, sort of how the writer directs our eye, isn't it? Mm. Right. Mm. The sort of details. What do you look at? Right, what do you look at? And and from what angle? Mm -hmm. um, an interesting experience seeing, uh, having um, novels adapted to film in as much as um, in, in the two cases where the films were really good. Mm -hmm. They weren't good because they were so, uh, or I should say, I felt they were good. I want to qualify that. Not everybody yeah. may feel that. Um, but um, I felt happy about the adaptations because they conveyed the tone and atmosphere of the novels. They right. chopped the plot up. They dropped characters off. They reduced a, what is a 20-hour reading experience to uh, less than two hours viewing experience right. and so forth. Everything you have to do to adapt a novel to film. Mm -hmm. But they kept the atmosphere and the tone. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize that, that that's where the moral perspective resides, mm -hmm. is in the atmosphere and tone in a work of fiction. It's not in the plot. Mm -hmm. um, it's not in the drama, right. even. I mean, those are all essential elements of any novel, mm -hmm. as they are of any film. But they, they can be varied enormously as long as you have the, convey that same moral perspective. Mm -hmm. you know, whether you're talking about Henry James or Mark Twain, you know, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. still the case. It's the atmosphere, the mood, right. the details. Yeah, not the actual selection of the details, although that's terribly important, but sure. also the language in which the details right. are presented to us. Mm -hmm. The diction, the level of diction, mm -hmm. um, just simple word selection, mm -hmm. the timbre of the sentence uh, and so forth, you know, the syntax of the yeah. sentence. These all are um, taking positions in the world uh -huh. for a writer. You know? uh, when, did this, when did you start understanding this? At what point in your career did you sort of... Well, I'd like to say it? I understood it in my late teens, early 20s, but right. I'd be lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but it comes through reading and doing, right? Through reading a lot, yes, through writing itself. Yeah. Um, I think I got, had glimmers of it, certainly by my middle 30s, mm -hmm. um, began to realize I was writing one way and not another. When you begin, you you have a, such a vast range of openings, of doors you can walk through as a writer. Right. And, and there are so many ways you could write, so many books you love, different kinds of writers you love, and right. so on, and, and, and are imitating different times, and so on. And then, but gradually, you find that there is a way of writing which doesn't just suit you, but allows you to, um, to um, enter the fictional world in a thoroughgoing way. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that probably occurred to me in my middle 30s. I mean, right. that happened, and I, and I began to feel that and see that. And there are other ways, therefore, I could never write. Mm -hmm. I could never write like John Updike. I could never write right. like. You know, other writers I admired enormously. I could only write the way I was writing at that yeah. time. Yeah. And, um, and I think I began then to realize, well, that's an expression, as much an expression of my... my uh, moral, political, social, ethical presence in the world, mm -hmm. um, the way I write, as um, any other form, and perhaps even more so than any other form of behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, and, and you know, because you begin to realize, after all, writing is behavior, right? And and it's the most intimate form of behavior you're capable of, um, and um, and so um, therefore you're really stuck being um, who you are. There, you're revealed. Mm -hmm. You know, you stand revealed. Right. Now you taught for a long time. The last place you taught at was uh, Princeton. Mm -hmm. um, there, in a kind of um, all-star fiction writing and teaching team with Toni Morris and Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. Is, is, as a teacher... Is I felt like a kind of a point guard bringing the ball up. <laughs> twin towers, two centers were down there, and both of them saying, give me the ball, Russell. And, and I go, dum diddy dum diddy dum I would stand down there at the free throw line and say, do I give it to Tony? Do I give it to Joyce? <laughs> it was, I must say, I'm not kidding. It was one of the greatest yeah. teaching and collegial experiences of my life was working with those two. Must have been C.K. Yeah. Williams was in poetry. C.K. Williams, right. Paul uh, Muldoon. Muldoon. Yeah, right. we had a wonderful, they still have a great writing program. Right. In, in teaching undergraduate. Even in my absence. Right. <laughs> In, in teaching undergraduates for so many years, mm -hmm. is, do you believe that you can see if um, a younger writer has a, a, a writerly intelligence? A kind of I think fear, so, you know? yeah. You don't know if a writer is going to be able to um, realize his or her um, use of that intelligence, mm -hmm. of that sensibility, but you can, I think you can see it. And it is a love of language that you first recognize in a young writer more than anything else. You mm -hmm. see that. You mm -hmm. see, this person just loves the way words go together. Right. Loves the way sentences you know, can be taken apart, put back together. Right. Loves the way paragraphs can be reorganized and restructured and so forth. Right. You can see that right away. It's, it's, it's physical almost. Mm -hmm. and, but whether a, a young writer will then be able to take that talent, because it is what we call talent after right. all, um, and, and become a a writer uh, for life. I mean, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a not as a make a living. God knows that's probably impossible. But mm -hmm. at least you know we'll make this his or her vocation. Mm -hmm. um, that that can't be. You can't predict that. You can't tell very well um, because it, it. What's required after that is is a is a willingness to endure um, rejection and. Um, um, frustration and um, willful negligence and so <laughs> forth for decades sometimes. Right. And, and that's very hard to endure. Right. Um, and, I, and I taught some wonderful, wonderful writers over right. the years. And, and um, I taught at Columbia in the graduate program. One of my, I had a class that was filled with people like Mona Simpson and Rick Moody and um, you know, there was Susan Minot, there was this extraordinary class where I walked in and looked around and said, you don't need me, I'm out of here. <laughs> but they were wonderful. But all of them took about 10 years before anybody knew who they were or what they were doing. Right. And they all were, however, the thing they had was the ability to withstand um, those 10 years, to, right. to endure and to keep writing and to keep pushing and and starting over again and starting a new one and, and so forth, year right. after year, even though they knew how gifted they were right. and they knew that they were doing something worth doing and they had encouragement from people like me and other faculty and right. mentors of various types, still in all, enduring that, that long period is the hardest thing of all, I think, for a young writer. What were you like as a student, as a young writer? Because you went to two places. Well, I right? came at it to... hard in a backwards way, in a way. I, I, from a generation that were before MFAs uh, programs existed, really. I mean, it was Iowa and Stanford and Johns Hopkins, I think, when I 
was of college age. Mm -hmm. And when I, uh, I went to college and lasted six weeks in 1958 and fled in the night uh, for, um, this was the fall, winter of 1958. Right. Um, and I was at Colgate and I fled in order to join Fidel Castro in the Sierra Maestra Mountains of Cuba to help him uh, overthrow the hated dictator uh, Fulgencio Batista um, and, and rescue the poor Cuban um, peasants. Yes. And so I got as far as Miami in, in February. <laughs> uh, I had just read On the Road, too, which had just been published that year. And I got as far as Miami, and Castro and Che and the boys marched into Havana and no longer needed this skinny kid from New England who couldn't speak Spanish anyhow. Right. <laughs> had no idea how to get from Miami to Cuba. And... Um, and so I ended up moving furniture and working in, you know, department stores. And, you know, I, I, and I started writing slowly and out of falling in love with reading at that point. And, and so I didn't go to college in any official capacity until I was 24. And I came in, by then I was married and had a child. And um, I had started to publish work. Mm -hmm. And I was married to a southern woman and living in New Hampshire, and I was working as a plumber. And, um, and your dad was a plumber as well. My dad and my grandfather were plumbers, right. and so it was sort of the family trade. And um, You still have plumbing chops? I was never a very good plumber. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> and one of my great pleasures in life has been to reach a point where I can call the plumber <laughs> <laughs> when something goes wrong. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, so you're living in New Hampshire. Living in New Hampshire, life. and my mother-in-law inherited some money and said, poor Russell, would you like to go to college? And I said, I'd love to go to college. She said she would pay for it. And my wife said, uh, I hate New Hampshire. If you're going to college, it has to be in the south. And she was from the south, mm -hmm. uh, from Richmond, Virginia. And, and at that time, the only good colleges, as I thought, uh, were um, – Virginia and Duke and Chapel Hill. And, and Virginia and Duke were all white and all male, mm -hmm. and you had to wear a tie to class. And Chapel Hill was racially integrated and was co-ed, uh, recently uh, co-ed, and, um, and it was exploding um, with um, political fervor. It was sort of becoming the Berkeley of the South during that period. What year it, was it? 1964. Uh, so the Civil Rights Movement was taking off right, right there, Greensboro and, 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 and Chapel Hill and Raleigh. And so I arrived September 64, and, and, um, and I was in jail two days later um, uh, and was at a party shot up by the Ku Klux Klan. And it right. just sort of threw me into the middle of, the, of this world that I only dimly had perceived up to that moment. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it really radically altered my life. Now, this isn't all related to writing particularly, but it was one of those moments where my sensibility, my age, my... Uh, history, the larger history of the country, um, and my values, those values that probably sent me off chasing after and romanticizing Fidel Castro six years earlier, all kind of came together. Mm -hmm. and, and so I became very active politically, and, 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 um, and my education really began there. But it wasn't so much my literary education as it was my social political education right. that began there right. in a real way. I mean, up to that, it you know, been a kind of quasi-bohemian. I was a late-blooming beatnik and an early-blooming hippie and kind of caught in the middle right. in some ways, you know. Right, right. But that kind of changed everything. Right. Now, as a writer uh, at that period, I, as I said, I was already publishing work, and I felt I was a writer, and I had a novel already written, and I 
you know, I, I kind of felt that I was entering that world, but I needed an, uh, the formalization of, an, of, a, of a classroom. Um, I, had, I was an autodidact up to that point, and, mm -hmm. and I really um, welcomed and made great use of, of um, a great English department and, and a great American history department mm -hmm. in, at Chapel Hill at that time, and, and managed to organize my, my mind in a way, mm -hmm. and organize all this uh, random and, and, and reckless uh, kind mm -hmm. of reading that mm -hmm. I had been doing on my own up to that point. Mm -hmm. So it didn't have that kind of effect on my writing the way, you know, studying writing the first time I was ever in a writing workshop, I had to teach it, and I hadn't a clue what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember walking in there, not, I've never been in a writing workshop. What do you do in a writing workshop? <laughs> I always allow myself one stupid question in every conversation. And here is my foolish conversation of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Before you went to North Carolina, did you understand what it meant to be white? That's not such a stupid question. <laughs> um, did, by asking that question, though, you're asking me, I think, did I understand white privilege? Yeah. Um, and and I, is there such a thing? Well, of course there is, um, uh, white privilege. Um, I was uh, actually at a, at a high school in, in New York City last week um, and talking with some students um, Manhattan, they were from all different boroughs, who had read a book of mine called Rule of the Bone, which is about a little a white, white homeless boy who gets involved in drugs and dealing and so forth and so on. And, um, and um, I asked the kids, there were about 70 or 80 kids, I said, well, what would you think if, if Bone, the kid, Chappy Bone, were black? And this really smart little girl down the front row, you know, African-American kid, she just raised her hand. She said, well, he would have been busted in the first chapter, and you never would have had a story. <laughs> That's white privilege. Uh -huh. and she got it. She understood it. Right. All right. uh, I, and that story, in a way, is about a kid eventually coming to that kind of knowledge, that right. kind of understanding. Right. And I think I came to that knowledge fairly early on um, by accident. Um, by traveling in the South in the late 50s and living in the South in the late 50s, Miami, but also other parts of Florida and then in North Carolina. And I realized the extraordinary kind of safety that surrounded me mm -hmm. as a white person in a dangerous world. Right. And, um, and I think that it began there. And then, um, then it took on all kinds of other um, facets and, and dimensions as I grew older and my experiences broadened and uh, travel broadened and, and, and so on. And, and I, I lived in Jamaica, as you mentioned early, and then I traveled widely in Africa and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And just as over time, um, it, it, um, it, it, you know, these experiences accumulate and, and I became more aware of it as I went along. Right. Because in, in your work, there's um, a real engagement with the idea of privilege. It's, it's racial privilege, it's also class privilege. Yes. I mean, yes. In, in, um, in your last published novel, The Reserve, for example, yeah. um, it's a look at um, the wonders of uh, these pristine environments mm -hmm. that are wonderfully maintained in their wild state. Mm -hmm. But they're private clubs, mm -hmm. and they're people, the townies who live nearby. Yeah, and they have a class, yeah. Right, there's a servant class. Mm -hmm. That sort of has access to it. Mm -hmm. um, in looking at um, 
Continental Drift, 25 mm -hmm. years old this mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. um, we have Bob moving from New Hampshire down to Florida. Mm -hmm. And then we have two people from Haiti mm -hmm. trying to get to Florida. Mm -hmm. And their paths are both difficult, but mm -hmm. difficult in different ways. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a real um, a fascination with class privilege, mm -hmm. which it's, it's some, it's, class privilege is not always easy for Americans to get their hands on. Mm -hmm. um, they know it sort of exists, but they're not quite sure where the boundaries are, mm -hmm. um, largely because of um, America's brilliant mythology of its origins and its meaning. Yeah, and, and, and of its future, the American dream, which right. is always out there in front. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of it, from my case, comes from, um, I mean, I'm from an old New England and Canadian, Eastern Canadian family. Um, Three of my grandparents are Canadian. My father's Canadian, and um, but they were always they were working people, going all the way back. They always held the reins for someone else's horse, right. and um, and I was very aware of that growing up. They were very aware of it, mm -hmm. of course. It was it was how they they saw themselves in the hierarchy, right. and they had they were not immigrants in the classic sense. They had been here so long and been waiting for the American dream for so long that they had given up on it. Right. And uh, anyone who attempted to like move up in class was regarded in some sense as, as betraying that mm -hmm. them and, mm -hmm. and in some ways um, judging them and right. rejecting them. Right. It, wasn't, it wasn't the case of the classic immigration pattern of three generations where right. one generation sacrifices itself for the next to go to university and the next one sacrifices itself so his daughter can be a poet. Um, it isn't quite that. Um, it was rather different. And I think I was very sensitive to that for various reasons, um, some of them simply the, the history of class within my own family and, right. and my own social context as mm -hmm. a kid. Um, but, um, but again, you know, these things merge as you go along in your life. Some are autobiographical and are personal and familial, right. and then some are historical. You happen to right. be at this place at this time. I happen to be in North Carolina in the middle 60s. Right. You know, you travel through the South in the, in the late 50s, and you, you walk in and you see, you know, water fountains for white people and water fountains for non-white people and so on, and you just run into this. And mm. eventually it all kind of adds up, if mm -hmm. you live long enough, mm -hmm. to what some people call ideology and others call sensibility. Right. 